You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Nicole Rose Marino helped found the Southern Plains Land Trust, or SPLIT, in 1998 and has served as its executive director since 2011. In her work for SPLIT, she's striving to create large shortgrass prairie wildlife refuges that emulate the American Serengeti that once occurred in the Great Plains. Thus far, Split has protected over 25,000 acres in southeast Colorado, a biodiversity hotspot. One of Split's preserves, Heartland Ranch, is larger than any one of Colorado's state parks. Nicole received her Ph.D. from the University of Colorado at Boulder in 2002. Her dissertation focused on the Endangered Species Act and ways in which ecosystem protection and the precautionary principle have factored in the law's legislative history. Over her career, Nicole has worked to enforce the Endangered Species Act, first for the Biodiversity Legal Foundation and subsequently for a decade at Wild Earth Guardians. She's endeavored to protect more than 800 species over the course of her career, but now focuses on Split's private land ownership approach to protecting the wildlife and plants native to the Southern Great Plains. So the Southern Plains Land Trust, we call ourselves Split, uh, started about 20 years ago and our vision was to create refuges for prairie wildlife um, where the critters of the shortgrass prairie of the southern plains would have an absolutely safe place and that's what we continue to do today and we're really excited to do so because one of the biggest problems in our region is is really the persecution of wildlife and so we we like to have a bright line on wildlife protection Within the borders of Splits Preserves, uh, the native wildlife is absolutely protected. Where, where is your primary in, area of interest in Colorado? So the Southern Plains extends across parts of five different states, Southeast Colorado, Southwest Kansas, the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles and Northeast New Mexico. And we are interested in efforts to bring back the American Serengeti in that broader geographic area. But the, the focus area for land acquisition for Split right now is in southeastern Colorado. And there are a couple good reasons for that. One is the presence of the Comanche National Grasslands, which is over 440,000 acres in size. And it's the largest publicly accessible block of federal land in the southern Great Plains. Uh, Southeast Colorado is also considered by scientists to be a biodiversity hotspot, uh, including an area of key biodiversity significance that's recognized internationally. There's a lot of intact habitat remaining, and the land prices are low. They're about $200 to $300 an acre, if you can believe that. <laughs> and so there's really a lot of opportunity to acquire land and protect it for nature's sake. After doing this for an awful long time and people who are in organizations and supporting organizations that do this type of work, I realized that 
a study could be conducted, and I think I would know sort of what the results are going to be. When we talk to uh, people, supporters, about uh, rewilding projects or wilderness or wildlands and things like that, we have a real problem with talking about mountain ranges, I think, in our movement. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that, if it is a struggle for you um, to get people to understand um, the beauty of this, not including mountains or, or oceans or whatever else you might feel that you might be a little bit in competition with in terms of attention span? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that, Jack, uh, because the the prairies in the mid-continent uh, of the, you know, the middle of our continent are really considered to be flyover country. Um, they're places that most people hurry through on their way to more exciting destinations, to the coast, to the forests, to the deserts. And if you stop, um, you'll understand it, that there's so much more going on in the Great Plains than meets the eye. Um, so we have a couple things that that impede us. One is that our native wildlife is much reduced from historic levels. Our area used to be considered an exciting destination. In the 1800s, uh, aristocrats from Europe were streaming to the plains in order to, um, and they were really attracted by the large numbers of bison, of pronghorn, of elk, of the predators that made a living off those animals, such as grizzly bears and wolves. And that has been much reduced um, through market pressures and sometimes just the desire to tame the wilderness. And so by the early 1900s, elk were almost gone from the prairie. They literally fled to the forest under heavy hunting pressure. Um, bison had been reduced to about a thousand animals, down from tens of millions. Pronghorn had been reduced from 15 million animals to about 13,000 individuals. And then the war started on the grizzly bears and the wolves, and those animals were entirely extirpated from the Great Plains. Black-tailed prairie dogs have suffered a decline by over 95% from their historic numbers. They used to be as abundant as the passenger pigeon, and I fear they're going the way of the passenger pigeon at such low levels. Um, and so there's, there's such potential in the Great Plains, um, but there's also a lot of work to be done. Uh, but I really love a quote from Candace Savage, who wrote a beautiful book called Prairie and Natural History. She wrote, there are people who think of the prairie as boring, and it is hard not to pity them. <laughs> and I think this, this is a great reflection on a landscape that right now is compelling. Uh, where we buy, we buy in the, in the rolling grasslands of the Southern Plains. We have canyons. We have dozens of miles of stream uh, within the boundaries of our preserves. We have gorgeous Dakota sandstone rock outcroppings. We have juniper forests. And then there are the extensive grasslands. And the primary grasses are the buffalo grass and blue grama, whose roots stretch many feet underground and are basically sort of the reverse of the rainforests. 
In the rainforest, you know, 90% of the biomass is above ground. In the prairie, about 90% is below ground with those thick mats of roots literally holding the land in place. And so there's tremendous potential for carbon sequestration that uh, many analysts are now, are now understanding uh, as, as present in the, in the grasslands. Uh, so the grasslands are important to the health of our planet. Uh, but they, they are also quite beautiful uh, where we're working in that most of the habitat remains intact. It hasn't been plowed. But the wildlife eking out a living on that habitat tends to be very heavily hunted. Um, so even today, the, the, the few elk that have managed to come back from the mountains in the forest are under heavy hunting pressure. Pronghorn have rebounded to about a million individuals across North America. But as I mentioned, they used to be 15 million individuals, so they deserve a place to bounce back. Bison um, have been reintroduced in several areas in the Great Plains, including on Splits Heartland Ranch Preserve. And we need more bison. Um, we're a fair cry from the tens of millions that uh, that existed historically on the Great Plains, and we're you know that's our U.S. national mammal, incredibly iconic, incredibly important uh, for all of the roles they play in the ecosystem, including this this wonderful mutually beneficial relationship that they have with prairie dogs, where bison will go into uh, you know a, a taller grass area and essentially mow down the vegetation for prairie dogs to move in. And in turn, bison prefer to graze on prairie dog colonies because the vegetation is more nutritious and succulent on prairie dog colonies. And so there's, there's really a great potential for this American Serengeti to bounce back. Bison can be easily reintroduced. And if we have enough prairie dogs, we can bring back one of North America's most endangered mammal, the black-footed ferret. If we give elk and pronghorn and mule deer uh, a safe place, we can have just wonderful populous herds of these ungulates, you know, that are reminiscent of uh, a wildebeest on uh, the, you know, in Africa. So mm -hmm. I, I do think there's tremendous potential. I think this is an incredibly evocative landscape reminiscent of the Wild West because it pretty much looks like the Wild West did. Uh, you know, 150 years ago, except we need a safe place for these critters to bounce back. Looking at the pictures on your site, it makes me wonder why there are so many more documentaries, National Geographic and otherwise, in the Serengeti <laughs> than there are here. I mean, is it because there are some iconic species in low numbers or missing from the landscape here that they can fly to Africa and just film? Is it flyover country for documentarians? Is it flyover country for conservationists in a, in a way? Maybe not in an um, intentionally negligent way, but what's the deal with that? That's really hitting the nail on the head. It has been flyover country for um, the, you know, certainly for the media and also for the conservation community. Uh, which is amazing. Uh, we really need to be paying attention to this critically important area um, cutting across the middle of our continent. 
And I, I think that's starting to change. Um, and I, I take heart from a book that, that just came out uh, by Dan Flores called American Serengeti, The Last Big Animals of the Great Plains. And Dan completely gets it uh, and, and really has a beautiful story to tell about why this region, the Great Plains, is so important um, and, and this great potential it can have of bringing back the American Serengeti. Um, and, and there was also a book that I know Dan uh, you know, is familiar with and, and talks about evocatively and, and I enjoyed reading, which was by P Peter Panyamento, it's called Prairie Fever. And it really makes it very vivid just how abundant these animals were and how breathtaking they were um, in their en enormous numbers. Um, to these Europeans coming over in the 1800s. I think we can get that back. But you mentioned Africa. And I think we have a lot to learn from Africa. For example, Kruger National Park in South Africa is several times the size of Yellowstone. And there's no debate in, that, in, in the human community there of just how important that park is to the economy. It is amazing to me in the U.S. today that we still have a debate about the economy versus the environment. There is no debate. If you protect the environment, you will have a healthier economy. Uh, and the manifestation there with the Kruger example is just the service sector, just tremendous opportunities uh, for people in the local communities uh, to benefit economically um, through the service sector. And in the Southern Plains, we have economies that are absolutely struggling. They are not diversified. They rely heavily on agriculture and need a lot of work to develop that service sector. And that's gonna benefit so many of the people in the local community. Um, you know, when we have visitors coming down to our preserves, largely to do service projects like removing uh, fencing that's hazardous for wildlife. Our visitors go to the local gas stations. They go to the local motels and um, the grocery stores and the restaurants, and they're bringing more dollars, more tourist dollars into those economies. So I think we, we have a lot to learn from Africa in terms of understanding that this resource, for lack of a better term, is really can create an economic boon. And so I take heart in, in that. And I think that conversation is going to um, unfold in the Great Plains. And I think it's going to pick up steam. You know, I think the Frank and Deborah Popper and their idea of the Buffalo Commons was, was right on, on target that this is an area of the country um, that is losing people. Um, that is losing young people in particular and therefore having an aging population issue. And the economies are struggling. The poverty rate in one of the counties we work in is three times the, the poverty rate of Colorado. That should tell anybody from whatever background that something needs to change, or at least we have to have a conversation about something new. Uh, and I think with the conservation community, I, I would love to see 
more attention paid, you know, not only to grassland conservation, but in particular to this idea of buying private land in order to create absolute refuge for wildlife. It works, it's tangible, and it can't be undone. I I, I can't imagine a scenario where um, this work could be reversed because we have ownership over the land. Uh, And that's critically important. You mentioned BLM disposing lands. It's, I think it's a mistake for the conservation community of which I've been a part for decades to put all of our eggs in the public lands basket. We need to do more work to create these private land refuges. Again, just like they do in Africa, there are game preserves right alongside Kruger National Park and other parks in Kenya, for example. And those preserves can can really provide an important role of a bright line on animal protection, which I think we need. You know, I look at the pronghorn and and certainly the game agencies in many Western states would would see no problem with continuing to allow pronghorn hunting. But I think the pronghorn deserve a break. They're at 1 million, it used to be at 15 million. Let's give them places where they can be absolutely safe. And we take that really seriously on our preserves that once they're in our borders, uh, they can't be hunted, period. It might be that the public just still feels like the only way to have really big wins is to have to equate that win with acreage, you know, a per acre basis. Like this is a 60,000 acre brand new wilderness area or national monument or whatever. The thing is, we're running out of places to do that. I think that it's just going to take all hands on deck. You know, we know from authors like E.O. Wilson that we need to protect 50% of a given habitat as a hedge against biodiversity loss. And in the Great Plains, conserved areas and parks together come to about 1%. So we got a lot of work to do, whether it is land acquisition, whether we can uh, do some public lands protection pushes, and maybe there are some alternatives in between. We need all hands on deck. We need to get busy in making sure that preservation of the grasslands keeps up with the good work that's been done in past decades in forested and other landscapes. So I I wouldn't pick and choose uh, among the, the broader community. I just think that we need to pay a lot more attention to this private lands effort, particularly under the current administration that shows very profoundly how risky it is to depend on public lands and depend on a steady hand in the federal government. We can't do that. We need, I think nature deserves for us to be resourceful and for us to be very clear headed about continuing to push for for progress for the preservation of our native flora and fauna. And what attracts me to the private lands acquisition model is that that progress is cumulative. There's the, you know, the saying that all in environmental work, you know, victories are, are temporary and defeats are permanent. But in our work, the victories are permanent. 
uh, and that's really important. You know, the Endangered Species Act has long had polling levels where 80% or plus of the American public favor it. And so there's this big disconnect between political leaders and their rhetoric against the Endangered Species Act, or uh, as I mentioned before, that false dichotomy of environmental protection versus economic growth. Um, and what you know, most people feel in this country, which is, you know, the, the native plants and animals, they deserve a future. They deserve a secure future. I come from a background of working on public lands protection and endangered species protection, but I have seen federal administration after federal administration impede and block much needed protection for species on the brink. I'll mention an example, which is the lesser prairie chicken. The lesser prairie chicken is one of the guild of grassland breeding birds who have been the most steeply and persistently declining group of birds in North America. They are in trouble. And the lesser prairie chicken is really in trouble. It is literally on the brink of extinction. It was listed under the Endangered Species Act for a couple years but due to court actions or you know, maneuvers in the courts, uh, it is not protected today. And 95% of its habitat is on private land. If the Southern Plains Land Trust was able to acquire some of the habitat uh, where the lesser prairie chickens persist, it would make a world of difference for that species uh, whose experience has been under Democratic and Republican administration being blocked from protections that the scientists agreed it deserved. And so that's, you know, it's a, it's a very tragic example of what can happen um, when we, we depend too much on our federal environmental regulatory framework. That, the lesser prairie chicken deserves to be listed. It deserves to be listed 10 years ago. Um, but that's gonna continue to be a long row to hoe and so in the meantime, let's buy up some lesser prairie chicken land and protect uh, the prairie chickens on that habitat, you know, permanently. Southern Plains Land Trust just got a new donor who is interested in, in, in putting a few million dollars to start. What are some of the things that you are looking for uh, or any projects that you're working on now where that actually might be the case, where um, you guys could really do some, make some really big gains? If we had a donor that came forward with a million or a few million dollars, we could immediately put that to use. We would translate that donation into actual land, protected land. Uh, we have opportunities uh, right now to expand our uh, preserves or to create uh, new ones. Uh, we have a six million acre focus area within the southern uh, eastern southeastern part of Colorado, and we have already identified properties uh, where um, there are willing sellers, and they are important strategically for the conservation values they hold and for the size of the properties. And so, one advantage we have going on right now is is we really have created um, opportunities to continue this momentum for expanding our preserve network. We've gone from 3,300 acres that we protected in 2011 um, up to over 25,000 acres today. And those are all private 
wetland acres and absolutely protected. And I think we could easily double that um, this year if we had enough uh, financial resources. And I'd like to see us continue to double it and grow exponentially. Because as I mentioned, you know, about 1% of the Great Plains lies in protected areas. We need to get that number up um, as soon as we can uh, in order to protect these uh, delightful and uniquely North American species that, that call this region home. What are, what are a couple of near-term and a couple of long-term goals that you have in terms of the biodiversity of the region, the repairs that need to be made uh, on the land that is being acquired that you would like to see? The delightful thing about where we are working is that the native wildlife and plants can largely bounce back on their own. If you just give them the safe space and you take away the human pressures, uh, we can have elk rebound. We can have pronghorn uh, grow in numbers. Uh, even more uh, you know, common species like coyotes and mule deer, we think they deserve a place where they can be absolutely safe. Uh, if nothing else, then to you know, play their ecological roles and continue functioning um, without having to worry about people. Benign neglect is actually an important part of the formula. And it's very cost efficient. <laughs> if we yeah. buy the land for two hundred or three hundred dollars an acre, make sure it's it's fenced in a way uh, that keeps um, uh, you know neighboring livestock off, but allows wildlife to access it. Uh, that's probably ninety percent of uh, of the of the solution. But another part is reintroducing the species that are missing. Bison are very easy to reintroduce. You can just bring them to your property and release them, you know, obviously following all the USDA regulations. Uh, Black-footed ferrets uh, for us are on deck next in that we're continuing to protect our prairie dog populations on which black-footed ferrets depend as an absolute lifeline. Over 90% of their diet is prairie dogs and black-footed ferrets cannot persist in the wild outside of a prairie dog colony. They reside in those prairie dog burrows and need that refuge themselves to escape predation from other species such as foxes and coyotes and golden eagles. And so we'd love to reintroduce the black-footed ferret and are working to get up to uh, the minimum requirements of the Fish and Wildlife Service in order to participate in that program. But we are also looking at um, active land restoration, such as willow and cottonwood plantings along the streams in order to bring back those riparian forests, uh, and in turn, beavers and all of the waterfowl that benefit from the habitat that beavers create. But a big part of that riparian restoration, again, is, is just benign neglect. It's not allowing those areas to be grazed and letting uh, the grasses come back on their own. We, we'd like to take a more active role with the, the woody vegetation and that there's not um, enough uh, remaining for it to regenerate on its own. But we're already seeing in, in the past couple years that we've owned Heartland Ranch uh, considerable healing of the riparian vegetation, which in turn you know, helps to stabilize stream banks and um, reduce the evaporation of the water and 
really make those stream side areas that are so important for the majority of Western wildlife, uh, you know, a more fertile and, and healthy place. You mentioned Heartland and you have a project uh, going on there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Heartland Ranch is 18,000 acres, which makes it almost 30 square miles, which we've figured out is bigger than the city of Boulder, Colorado, and bigger than any one of Colorado's state parks. And we have $1 million left to raise to complete the acquisition uh, of that property. And so we are right now looking for donors to, to help us meet that goal in 2019 because that will enable us to quickly pivot to another immediate opportunity we have to expand our preserve networks. So that's Heartland Ranch. It is a beautiful uh, property. It has mesas and canyons and lots and lots of rolling shortgrass prairie and a couple dozen stream miles within its borders. And those streams flow into the Arkansas River, which is the largest watershed by area in Colorado. And so Heartland is, is really a spectacular place. It has quite a few rare plants. One of them, Colorado green gentian, is found only in southeastern Colorado. It's just a stunningly beautiful plant with a lily-like bloom. Uh, and it's unique to our area. And we are very proud of, of it. And we also have a, an evening primrose uh, that's quite rare and other other plant species uh, that have have never been documented in this area. And so our work is helping to increase this, the state of knowledge on native biodiversity uh, because we, we welcome scientists from a range of, uh, dis of discipline to come visit the property and uh, catalog what's there so we can better manage for it. That said, we do not allow unregulated visitation or, or general recreation. Our refuges are, are, are deliberately protected in a way that not only reduces the chances of animals being killed, but reduces the disturbances to them. And every time um, people um, recreate in an area, um, they have the high potential to disturb the resident wildlife. So we are which is very exacting about our standards for the protection of nature. Uh, and we do allow visitation in the service of wildlife, such as removing barbed wire fence or conducting those, um, those cottonwood and willow plantings along the stream. But it's, it's quite a different model. And I think it's, it's an important part of the vision for you know, nature needing half, as Leo Wilson puts it, that there needs, to, when we talk about preserves, there need to be absolutely preserved places uh, so that the wildlife can make their living uh, without being um, obstructed or impeded by the actions of humans. Now, for listeners who uh, want to support local economies, and, um, I, and I can imagine that the visitation, what was the grassland, the national grassland, did you say? It's the Comanche National Grassland. Comanche National Grassland. So that is open for people to come and, and check out, right? And hike and, and uh, responsibly recreate? That's right. There are public roads adjacent to our preserves. So, you know, I mentioned the Kruger National Park example. It's similar to that. You can drive through, but 
can't get out <laughs> unless it's in the course of a, you know, a volunteer event that we're having on our land. And we, and we definitely welcome folks to contact us at southernplains.org um, to learn more about those opportunities to help wildlife uh, and also to support the organization. That's what I was going to say for the, anybody listening that's got a million dollars burning in your pocket and you just want to make the Heartland uh, project happen now, southernplains.org and, um, and get in touch. So there you go. That should be happening soon after this airs, Nicole, I'm sure because of our listenership and uh, <laughs> Excellent. I'm just going to manifest that. Okay. That's done. Let's just make that a done project. I like that, Jack. Thank you. And finally, we're finding that people really don't protect places that they don't know that they don't love, that they don't have a lot of contact with or any contact with. They just can't. They don't have a sense for it. Tell me what it's like for you to get right into the center of one of your uh, areas, one of your favorite areas, um, where it's the most quiet, it's the most wild. I am deeply in love with the shortgrass prairie. When, when I'm on a Southern Plains Land Trust Preserve, my love for the prairie is, is complete in that the wildlife I'm looking at, I know have a secure future. And that makes such a difference because sure, we can see wildlife, you know, in urban and suburban areas or, you know, as we're driving by on the highway, I always worry about the future of those critters that, that I enjoy spotting, uh, but I don't know that they have a safe place. And that's not an issue when they're on a Southern Plains Land Trust Preserve. They have every chance uh, for a secure future. And, th and that makes a big difference for me. And I can tell you just, you know, recently, you know, walking on uh, Fresh Tracks Nature Preserve, which was our charter preserve we established 20 years ago, uh, the grasses were incredibly lush, where 20 years ago there had been bare ground and snakeweed, which is a, it's a native plant, but it's an, an increaser. It had almost disappeared in, in its place where these lovely uh, knee-high um, oceans of grass, of, of blue grama and side oats grama and little blue stem and buffalo grass and others. And as I was walking across the prairie, uh, I saw a little movement in the grass and there was a badger. And she looked at me and I looked at her and she retreated to her burrow. She didn't go down, but I backed away uh, because my uh, sign of success in an animal sighting is if I don't disturb the animal, if I don't flush them, if they continue doing what they were doing. And that happened to me, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And more recently, I had a similar encounter on our Heartland Preserve with uh, a pair of mule deer bucks. They were enjoying our canyons and they were enjoying them when I saw them and when they saw me and they continued to enjoy them after I left. I've seen bobcats on our preserves. I've seen coyotes sometimes running, sometimes still, and it's very difficult oftentimes to see a still coyote because they are hunted so heavily that they are off like a shot, so to speak, as soon as they see a person or a vehicle. I've, I saw a herd of about 28 pronghorn uh, the other day. They were deep within a split preserve. Pronghorn are fast runners. They're the fastest runners in the Western Hemisphere. 
and they stayed still and continued grazing, even though they could see me um, from from afar. They were about a, a mile away, and they can see about three miles in distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we've seen lots of raptors these days because it's winter. So we'll see golden eagles and ferruginous hawks and rough-legged hawks and American kestrels by the score. We have flocks of horned larks, which are um, among those grassland breeding birds we're concerned about, um, just skittering around the roadside and (laughs) across the field. And these are all, for me, very common sightings. Uh, And I don't think that most people understand that all of that magic is right now today on the Great Plains. And it could be even more magical if we just had larger and larger areas set aside for prairie wildlife, uh, because they really do find and use that refuge once we create it for them. Uh, So we have our bison herd uh, that we've reintroduced to Heartland Ranch. Uh, It is quite amazing to see bison and prairie dogs reunited after 150 years of being apart. Uh, it's it's a wonderful sight to see this ancient interaction uh, back in place as it should be. Well, thank you for conveying that. That's exactly what I wanted to hear uh, about the richness of your an experience to be had out there. And we are definitely going to have to dive into topics um, in the future. So I hope you will be willing to come back in the future and talk to us more about your work. And I hope that one reason is because you've secured the funding for the Heartland Ranch Project. And for anyone who wants to help with that, you can go to southernplains.org and get in touch. And also, it sounds like there's some volunteer opportunities that might pop up from uh, here and there with you guys. So if you like to get your hands dirty, and that's the way you like to contribute, southernplains.org. Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us on Rewilding Earth today. Thanks, Jack. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks for all you do. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter. 